Well, good morning, Door Creek. How are you? Good, good. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Door Creek, and I'd just love to invite you or welcome you again this morning, especially if you're new. Uh, we're so glad that you've joined us today for worship. So I've been on staff here at Door Creek a little over a year, and uh, I, this is my first time that I get to preach, and I'm super stoked about it and excited to, yeah, thank you. Wow. Coffee has been good to you guys this morning. <laughs> so I usually get to stand like five feet this way, and you guys look just as good right here as you do from back there. And so I'm excited to get in. Well, my family and I uh, welcomed a new baby girl into our family. And I think, oh, yes. Her name is Avery Ann. So two weeks ago, so we're relearning all of the things that you can do while sleeping. And so changing diapers and even probably parts of this message uh, will be done. I think we have a picture of the family as well. And so this is Mother's Day, and this is my wife three days after giving birth to a baby. Yeah, she is, seriously, she is to be honored among women. Um, she's amazing. But that's Quinn, our oldest, Nora, getting squished in the middle, as is going to be her life. Graham, our only boy, and then Avery and my wife, Nikki. And so I just want you guys to know who they are. And I want to tell you, Door Creek, from the start, you have been such a welcoming church to us. And we are so happy as a family that our kids are going to spend their young years and maybe their older years, whatever God has planned here, getting to know you, being taught about God, and that we might find relationship and community in such a place like this. So thank you. Thank you for being welcoming. That's Jesus in you. And so I'm grateful, grateful for that. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our series on the storyline. And we started in January in the book of Genesis, right at the very beginning of the Bible. And our goal is to get all the way through it to the book of Revelation. And it's a large task. And we're kind of flying at like 60,000 feet, which the occasional kind of like down to 30,000 just to get a closer view. And so we've come all the way through uh, books about how God created the world, books about how God set aside a people for himself. We've seen faith. We've seen failure. We've seen God always redeeming his people. And now we're coming, kind of bumping into the wisdom books of our Bible. And so we come to Job. Job is the first of the wisdom books. We've got Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And the reason that we have these books in our Bible is to help us see how God has ordered the world that he has made. And so Job is going to help us to do that this morning as we look at Job's chapter 1 and 2 for the second week. Last week, Mark talked about the wager between God and Satan. And this week, we're going to look and zero in on Job's suffering and his worship in the midst of his suffering. And so to start, I want to pray, and I want to open God's Word, and I'm going to read all of Job 1 and 2 in their entirety. I want us to reframe our minds and hear God's words as we dive into this topic this morning, because it's a bit hefty. So let's pray and ask God's help, and then we'll turn to our Bibles. God, I thank you again just for waking us all up this morning. That we, and then not only waking us up, but bringing us together here. God, thank you that you are a God who draws near your people, and that when we gather, you show up in a particular, a unique way for the benefit of your church, for the benefit of us knowing your son. God, thank you that we can sing to you, and that we can, no matter what's going on in our lives, hold you as the most valuable possession that we have. And so, God, as we thank you for the life and the breath you've given us, we also ask, would you show us more of yourself today? 
that we might leave this morning fuller than we came in with a vision of who you are and who you're calling us to be. We ask help in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you take your Bible, um, and if you have one of the blue Bibles from the back, we're going to be on page 402. And if not, you can scroll or navigate or, or open. And I'm going to read Job 1 and 2. And I'll just ask, would you pay attention, especially to the season, scenes of Job's suffering? And then we're going to unpack this together. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him as his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out of the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
and he still maintains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Well, if you're anything like me, you read a long stretch of scripture like that, and you, you kind of start out, and it's like, okay, I'm getting this. It kind of makes sense. And then as things kind of start to pile up, it gets confusing, doesn't it? It gets confusing as to what God is doing and why all of this is happening. And so this morning, I want us to just zero in on Job's suffering, his response of worship and suffering, and then we're going to need to ask a big question about why God allows suffering. And in all of this, we're looking at Job, but we're looking at Job so that we can see more about God, right? Remember, this book is in our Bible, just like all the other Bibles, to help us understand more about who God is. And wisdom, literature, is here to help us understand how God has ordered his world. And so we're going to look in at the two scenes of Job's suffering, and we're going to walk through them one by one, and we're going to just try to identify with this man. So in chapter 1, we read that uh, a single day, um, Job loses everything he has. And so let's just walk, let's walk through this account. Remember the scene? Satan's challenging God. Well, so Job only loves you because you gave him all this stuff. And God says, okay, we'll take it away. And this is what happens. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing, and the Sabaeans attacked. They made off with them. They killed all your servants, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This is not a good start to Job's day. And so just as he's probably beginning to wrap his mind around a plan to go some distance probably from where he was at, at his house, um, another servant comes in. And he says, you're never going to believe what happened. Fire fell from the sky and wiped out all the sheep. And not only the sheep, but it killed all the shepherds who were tending the sheep. I alone have escaped to tell you. So now we have two just majorly catastrophic. I mean, it, for, for farmers, the animal is everything. If you don't have the animal, you don't get what the animal produces. And everything that you have is at stake. While he was still speaking, another messenger comes. The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, those jerks. 
And they've come and they've taken all the camels and they've made off with them. And they killed all of the servants. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And I think at this point, we would, we would give it to Job to call it quits, right? All of his possessions, they're all listed out for us right at the beginning of chapter 1. And now they're gone. He has nothing. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and your daughters were feasting at your oldest son's house. And at this point, do you think that maybe Job thought, and then they heard what happened, and now they're coming. They're coming to help their father. They were partying, but now they're coming to help me. But that's not what it says. It says that when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them. They're all dead, Job. So not only are your material possessions gone, your livelihood finished, but now you have no progeny. You have no one to carry on your family name. And I think that would be enough for any of us. But it doesn't stop there. We see a scene again where Job, instead of doing what I think would be most natural for us, he goes into worship. And then we roll into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we learn that Satan is again wandering around the world. And I kind of read, kind of read into this a little bit. Satan's kind of bored. You know, he got the whole Adam and Eve thing sorted out, and now he's just been kind of like wandering around the earth. You know, just we read that. He's, he's wandering. He's aimless. And so he checks in with God just to see kind of what's going on as God is overseeing how his world is operating. And God again points out Job and in a, in a way saying, Satan, you were wrong. He worshiped me. And Satan goes, well, you just took his stuff. Attack his health, and then let's see what happens. And so God does. And Satan inflicts Job with sores, is what the NIV says. The ESV, which is a different translation of the Bible, uses the word boils. And uh, I, I grew up in the church, and so I've heard this story a lot of times, and I've heard different sermons preached on it throughout the years. And when I first heard the story, it was like the flannel graph style, right? How many of you remember the Job flannel graph style? And so we see Job first, right? He's maybe a little shepherd crook in his hand or something. And then the next picture is him like on the ground, shaved head, and he's like covered in like dark spots. Let me tell you, boils are not dark spots on your skin. They're much worse. And so I had to look it up because I didn't know. I was reading through and I'm like, what's a sore? What's a boil? What, what are these things? And I thought, well, they're probably kind of like scabs. I've had a scab. Okay, it itches. That's why he's rubbing himself with the clay pot. Boils are not scabs. And so are you ready? We're going we're gonna to do this. <laughs> we're going to talk about boils because I had to learn. And just think that 1015 is going to have to go like eat lunch quickly afterwards. <laughs> so you guys, you guys are in a good spot. Okay, so a boil is caused when bacteria gets under the skin in a place that it's not supposed to be. And it usually, much to my horror, gathers around hair follicles. <laughs> and it festers. And at first it is not super noticeable, but over time it grows. As it grows, pressure develops under the skin that becomes painful 
to the point where it's hard to move the appendage that's infected because it's rubbing up against all the joints and tendons and muscles. And then it gets going and it ruptures. And when your skin can no longer take holding all the pus in that's developed in the boil and it ruptures, the pus and the bacteria flow down your body and you run the risk normally if you have one boil of forming other boils because it could get in your skin. But Job is covered. They're on the bottoms of his feet. They're all from head to toe. He's covered in these boils. And so when they begin to rupture one by one, from abscess to abscess, the bacteria-filled pus flows down his body. And I don't know, but my guess is that when his friends show up and they don't even recognize him, he's somewhere in that stage. The boils have begun to burst, and he's unrecognizable, and he can't even speak. He's in so much pain. They don't talk for seven days because Job is such a mess. I think in a room this size, it wouldn't take us very long to put together a not short list of people who are suffering with pain, with physical pain. And I just want to tell you that God sees you and God knows your pain and he will not waste your suffering. There's purpose in it, as we're going to see. God is sovereign over pain. He is sovereign over suffering. And we see this. That's an exclamation point on that, I think. God says of himself in Romans 8, 28, that he works all things together for good for those who who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's sovereign over Job's suffering, and he's sovereign over our suffering. Look at what Job says. Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I'm just going to try something here. How do you feel about that, Paul? Feel good? All right. I'll just talk a little louder. And then at, right after that, this is in, in chapter 1. As Job is recounting his worship of God. Right after that it says, In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It's confirming that God sent Job's suffering to him. And then in chapter 2, Job is rebuking his wife. And he says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And, and then God footnotes, And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And so at the beginning of Job chapter 1, we see Job worshiping God for all that he had given him. And then again here, we see uh, Job confirming that God also, well, he sent the good, he also sent the suffering. Job knows that just as all of those things came from God, he's now suffering at God's pleasure. And when we suffer, it's so important to just slow down. We need to look to God, we need to recognize his sovereignty over our specific situation, not just all things. I think we too quickly sometimes move to, God's good. God's, it, God's good. I'll be okay. And we, we think of it kind of in an overarching way. God's good because, well, he is good. He's in Christ and whatever else. But do you think of your own suffering at the moment when you are saying that? Even though you're in the midst of it. 
that, that God is good because of what you're going through. Not just in light of it, but for it. John Piper says about suffering and God's sovereignty in suffering, it is a great sadness when sufferers seek relief by sparing God his sovereignty over pain. The sadness is that it undercuts the very hope that it aims to create. Are you seeking hope by looking past God instead of to him for the source of your suffering? It won't work. You won't be able to consider your suffering in the light that he wants you to. God wants you to come to him, rest fully in him as your good king. And when we see the God that way as he really is, it's easier, not harder, to worship him. We trick ourselves. It's easier to worship God as we see his sovereignty and suffering than if we would try to get him off the hook. Without acknowledging that God sends both blessing and suffering as he sees fits, we're actually dangerously close to denying who he is. And so we've seen Job's suffering, unimaginable loss of possessions and family. I mean, this is a devastated man by all of our standards, and now we're seeing physical health is gone. He's at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And what does he do? Job's response to God in the middle of suffering is actually baffling. It's one of the things I think that we wonder at the most about Job. He worships God. He doesn't just point to God as the source of his suffering, but then he actually glorifies him for it. And so we, uh, we need to understand that. And in order to do so, I want you to flip open to chapter 1, 1 through 5, and we're going to see that Job's life of worship is the foundation for his ability to worship God when suffering strikes. If you look at Job 1, right there at the beginning, this man, Job, was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So he's living a life that's pointed at God. He's moving away from evil things. He's living a life of worship, of placing a high value on who God is. And then at the end of verse 5, we see this scene where Job is, out of great concern for his children, great love for them, and out of great fear for God, he prays for them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And then this is the important part. This was Job's regular custom. Job was regularly in the habit of being in the presence of God. He put a higher value on him than everything else that he owned, even his children. He may not have realized it, but he was preparing for the day when four messengers would come, one right after the other, delivering the worst news the worser, worse news, and all the way up until he's lost everything. You saw Graham up on the screen just a little earlier. He's two, turned two in March. And he's everything that a little boy who's two should be, I think. He swings and smashes and throws. And he, can th he can throw really far, and it hurts. That's what... I mean, just, you know, just in case you're wondering. And he is all about running right now. In fact, it's this great game we can play. How fast can you run here? And he loves it. Okay. And he goes. And he, in the last couple of weeks, has gotten just tall enough 
so that he can't run underneath the lip of our island anymore. You see where this is going. And so it was a couple of, sometime in the last couple of weeks, I've told you I've been mostly sleeping while doing activities, and all of a sudden I hear it, bam, and then the cry, and then the call, Daddy! And I come in to the kitchen just from the living room, and he's there on the ground, holding, rubbing his head, and I pick him up, and he just melts into my arms. And I, and I say, you're all right. Are you okay? Rub his head. Yeah, he's fine. And what his response is what I want us to think about. When he got hurt, he called out for what would bring him comfort. Now, Nikki wants me to add that we had just been together, Graham and I, and if he had been with her, he probably would have called for her. And that's fine. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. And I'll, I'll own that. But the point is that when we experience suffering and pain, we go to that which we think is going to make us feel better the fastest. For Job, that's God. He cries out to God first. He worships God because he trusts God. The only way that we will be able to worship God in the midst of our suffering is if we make the decision to trust him long before the suffering comes, as Job did. That's the only way we'll make it through. If we're in the regular habit of coming before God, of revealing our hearts and trusting in who he claims to be. For me, and I recommend this, it's getting time in my Bible. And when I am short on time in my Bible, the comfort level I find in God starts to dip. Because I'm not face-to-face with him as much. And I start finding comfort in other things. And those start to rival where I go when I experience hardship and pain. And so I would encourage, spend time in this book, get to know your God, and then fellowship with others. That's another strength that God has given us, that as the church we can come together, whether it be to gather on the weekend or to gather in life groups, and experience fellowship, rich fellowship around God's word as we live our lives together. And then we not only have a clearer picture of who God is, but we also have support in the time of suffering as Job had his friends. And they came to him. They are willing to sit in silence with him. You know, we preach through books of the Bible here at Door Creek because we want to, like Job, have well-worn paths to God. And so as we all sit under the word together, um, we learn kind of how to get through those passages together. And that actually develops community around God's word. It's one of the reasons we're going through the whole Bible. We want to have some well-worn paths through the Bible together. And there's a, there's a path I want to show us in these first two chapters. And so if you flip open again, I just want to trace this through. So at the start of chapter 1, we're introduced to Job. And all that we know about God is that Job is deciding to live for God. He's living for God, he's fearing for God, and he's shunning evil. He's moving away from evil. And he spends regular time with God, which tells us that Job has put a higher value on God than he's put on everything else. And then we come to the second scene. God and Satan 
And there's angels around. God's kind of holding court, and he's kind of running the world from heaven. And then we see God put suffering on Job. And we need to see God sending suffering to Job as confirmation that he really is as valuable as Job is saying. Right? Job is, is, is praying for his children. He's releasing his kids and all that he has back to God. And in doing so, he's saying, God, you're more valuable than they are. I'm going to live not as, as man would live, not as I would want to live gravitating towards evil, but I will look to you. And God confirms that by bringing suffering to Job. And then what happens? Job confirms it again by worshiping God. So Job worships God as he's revealed himself to him. God brings suffering into Job's life. Job still worships God. God is still the most valuable thing. And then the second bout of suffering comes. And we're just like, we get the picture. We get it. God is more valuable than things God is more valuable than relationships than family. And God takes Job's health, and Job says to God, yes, even now you are better than my health. And I think I'm going to die, and you're still better. And that pattern helps us to see something not about Job. If we see something about Job, if we're like, wow, that guy, he's resilient, he's faithful, we've missed it. What we need to see is the lengths that God is willing to go to show how valuable he really is. That's what he wants us to see. That he's willing to bring suffering so that we, so that we would recognize his goodness and his faithfulness. Even though it's incomprehensible at times. God loves Job so much, or sorry, Job loves God so much rather that not even the loss of wealth, possessions, family, and health can tear him away from him. And I wonder if we can say the same. Does our love for God surpass our love for our position in life, our possessions, our relationships? It's a hard question, but it's one that we have to face. The foundation for worship in suffering is loving God more than everything that we could possibly lose. Just take an inventory. Is God speaking to you? There's an immediate application for this. And it's the way that we relate with our current situations in life. Whatever is going on. And I think that we have a tendency as just a Christian culture in general to try to kind of cover over our suffering instead of living it with it in the open as Job did. And Door Creek, I just want to encourage us, let's not do that. Let's live authentic lives of transparency with one another. Let's cry out to God in the quietness of our own personal worship, but let's come together in a way that puts God on display as more valuable than appearance. I'm not just talking fashion. I'm talking having it all together. God is more valuable than having things buttoned up, tucked in the right places, lawn mowed, house well kept, cars all in a row, 
children doing the right things, bank accounts rising in the appropriate spaces and places as they should so that we can accomplish the goals that we've set out to accomplish. These are the weak points, right? We see this. These are the things that Job loses. He loses possession. He loses relationship. We experience these ups and downs in our everyday life. And I think that God wants us to live in a community together where we're acknowledging that he's better. And we can only do that if we're transparent with one another. And so how we come into this room and bring authenticity about our suffering into corporate worship is, how, is the measure of how we're going to see that God is awesome and he's knitting together a messy group of people i mean if anything a newborn teaches you that you actually have no ability to really keep anybody alive but god is helping you you make mistakes and um they cry a lot not too much oh that we would be authentic as we come to worship god you know, I can say this, the songs that we sing on the weekends are intended to put in front of us a God who's bigger than we can imagine. They're intended to speak of Christ who's accomplished all so that we could be near to God, so that we could be near to one another. Our goal every time we gather is to say that together, that Jesus is better. And I think that over time, when we all agree God reveals himself in a way that will not only change our lives, but it's going to change our neighborhoods and our community, our city, our county, our state, the world. But it's going to come out of this corporate worship together as we come to grips with who God is and who we are in the moment. And we know that that changes and shifts even as quickly as the span of a day. So we've looked at Job's suffering. We saw his suffering. We looked at his worship out of suffering. God's revealed some hard truths about himself. And so I said that we would close by answering a question. And the question is, how, out of, out of the book of Job, how does God allow suffering? How can he bring this suffering into Job? Why does he? And the answer actually isn't given. That's not given to us in the book of Job. We don't know. God doesn't say, I caused Job to suffer because. He introduces it, and there's no reply. But what we do see, and I want to just summarize the rest of the book for us so that we can kind of see how the narrative plays out. We're kind of standing on the dock. And we've got chapters 3 through 37, 38, 39, 40, 41 of Job are like kind of like a misty swamp. It's poetry. It's beautiful poetry. It's some of the most amazing poetry in the Bible. If you've not read through this book, I totally suggest doing it. Take your time because it can be confusing, but it's beautiful. And then on the other side, we're going to kind of climb out of the swamp onto another solid ground, and that's where we're going to land the next week. And so I just want to kind of give us the outline of where that's headed so we can see what the book of Job is actually trying to say about God in response to this question of why is there suffering. Because it doesn't give an answer, but it, it says something else. So we saw that Job's friends showed up. And they showed up, and they sit with him for seven days, and they don't talk. 
And then Job starts to speak. And he starts to say, I am so done. I am innocent, and I wish I wasn't even born so that I wouldn't have to go through this. And one friend answers, and then Job speaks again, and then another friend answers, and then Job speaks again. And their whole dialogue is Job saying, I'm innocent, and then saying, well, you can't be innocent because the way that God has set up the world, only people who sin get punished. So you must be a sinner somehow. And then a man comes along who's not part of the three friends, and he starts to say, actually, God uses suffering in our lives to prepare us for things, to get us ready. And finally, Job's had enough, and he actually calls God out as unjust. And then that's where God steps in. Listen to what he says to Job in chapter 40, verse 1. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And after another chapter or so of God putting, him on dis- putting himself on display as all-powerful, all-sustaining, and all-worthy of worship, Job finally realizes what's going on, and he says this in 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So God doesn't answer the why of suffering. We're left at the end of the book of Job with a mystery about that. But it's not unlike another mystery where God inflicted suffering on another righteous man who had done nothing wrong, And in that story, it's not just the loss of position, possession, physical agony, loss of relationship, friends who turn their back on him. Those things were there. But no, in that story, God actually goes all the way, and he allows this righteous man to be killed. And his name is Jesus. And so part of what Job prepares us to see is our Savior. Job was righteous. Jesus was righteous. Job suffered unknowingly. Jesus suffered knowing the whole time, his whole life, that he's headed to the cross. Job is in the end vindicated. Jesus rises from the dead, defeats death, and starts to build the church. And he's reigning in heaven, waiting to come back and end suffering once and for all. Job questioned his suffering and ultimately accused God of being unjust. Because of what Jesus has done, we can be better than Job. We can say, God, we trust you. We don't know why this is happening. Would you help us to worship you even though this is so painful? Oh, that that would be our response. The two times Job's suffering comes into his life, one in chapter 1, one in chapter 2, he responds with worshiping God. The first time, he cries out, blessed be the name of the Lord. The second time, he's urged to curse God and die. And yet he doesn't. And we are left with those same options, actually. Every time we face suffering, we can either say, blessed be the name of the Lord, or we can curse God and die. 
Those are really the only two options we have. Oh, I pray that we would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how you reveal yourself. And God, I pray that as we leave this room this morning, you'd help us to just pick out wisdom and truth from Job, from this time that we spent together. God, I pray it would be fuel for us as we engage with you this week, as we live our lives this week. Would you help us, teach us to be transparent in the way we relate to you. You know all things in the way we relate to our families, in the way that we relate.